Amen. Take your copy of God's Word once more and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Hear now the word of the living God. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own households well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, Lord, once more we pray simply that by your Spirit we would have what we need to rightly receive your word and proclaim your word. We pray that the voice of Christ, the mind of Christ would be made known to his people. Help us and edify your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we looked at Acts chapter 6 in the setting apart of the first deacons the church at Jerusalem. We referenced this evening's passage. We read it even this morning, 1 Timothy 3, 8 and following. But tonight I want us to spend a little bit of time considering the qualifications of deacons that we see laid out here in the scriptures. There are at least six different components that we could glean from this passage But before we do that this evening, I want us to consider and be reminded of one of the things that we saw this morning, and that was the importance of the role of a deacon, and particularly the fact that according to Christ's design by his spirit, the church of Jesus Christ has two offices. One office is an office dedicated to service and the use of Christ-given authority to serve the people. The other office is focused on teaching and ruling. Both are spiritual offices and both require spiritual consideration. This evening we begin in 1 Timothy 3 verse 8 and we see the word likewise. Now quickly that word is there as a connection point We don't have time to go over all of the qualifications in the first seven verses of chapter 3, but if we were to do that, you would see the qualifications for elders or pastors or presbyters or bishops or overseers. They are all words for the same office. So then when Paul, writing to Timothy, says, likewise, he's now giving us another set of qualifications, but this time for a different or second office. Likewise, Deacons must be reverent. 
The first thing that I think that we see in our text this evening, beloved, and it's important for us because by God's grace, should the Lord tarry, we will be in the position in the next few weeks or months and in the months and years ahead of considering individual nominations for this office. And so this text is for all of us. The text of Scripture asks us to consider the qualifications of particular believers for both of the two offices. Likewise, deacons must be reverent. The first thing that I think that we see is that deacons should be respectful in manner. Respectful in manner. That word reverent could be, and some translations do render it as dignified. The New King James renders it as reverent, both good translations. And you could say that that word could be a summary statement of the rest of the list, or it could be the first of many qualifications. For to be reverent in some sense means that you're not double-tongued, that you're not given too much wine. But there is a focus on the manner of the deacon or the candidate for the diaconate. This person is respectful in manner towards the living God and towards others. William Hendrickson, writing on this passage, says this, quote, This refers not only to their necessary decorum or propriety of manner and conduct, but also to the fact that in their inner thoughts and attitudes, they must be men of spirit-wrought gravity and respectability. Now, of course, the church of Christ is not going to be able to discern the thoughts of men. Those men may share thoughts with us. We may be able to guess, however fallibly, what they're thinking. But the context here reveals to us that there's something that the Spirit has wrought in them over their years of walking with Christ that begins to bubble over into how they live their lives. They are, again, reverent before God, respectful before God and others. Likewise, deacons must be reverent. A second thing that I think that we see in this text, in addition to their respectful manner, is that they are to be self-controlled in conduct. Now, we're given several areas of self-control. Notice with me. Likewise, deacons must be reverent. And then we read these words, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. You know, sometimes you give a list by saying these are the positives. This is what a person must do or be. But sometimes you give a list by saying this is what a person must not do or be. Here, by way of saying the negative or what they must not do, we have three different areas of self-control. The first area is self-control of the mouth. Notice they must not be double-tongued. Meaning, saying one thing to one person and one thing to another. Or, saying something to an individual that they don't really mean. Speaking out of both sides of the mouth. Of course, it would not be wrong to assume that as a part of this qualification of self-control of the mouth, this person is not a gossip. This person is not given to irreverent kinds of speech. 
But rather, by God's grace, through the fruit of the Holy Spirit, there is a self-control of the tongue. But notice, secondly, that when we say they're self-controlled in conduct, that there's also a self-control of the body. This is, of course, listed by the very familiar substance which can often be so easily abused, not given to much wine. Now, I know in our church, knowing just about every single one of you, that I don't have to convince you that what this is not saying is they don't drink alcohol. But just to be clear, this is not a prohibition against alcohol use, but rather a prohibition against alcohol abuse. They are controlled in body. They're able, if they choose to drink alcohol, to not be given to it, to not be controlled by it. Their mouths are controlled and their bodies are controlled. But notice thirdly, not greedy for money. They have self-control in the area of possessions. They're not driven by money, by possessions. There is a general self-control. Now, beloved, before we go any further, look at the next verse. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. That word blameless also shows up in the qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy 3.2. A bishop or elder then must be blameless. This harkens back, of course, to other passages of Scripture where the word blameless is used to describe someone. For instance, Abraham in the Scriptures was called blameless. Job in the Scriptures was called blameless. This doesn't mean sinless. This doesn't even mean not having to struggle in the battle with sin, but rather it means that as a person considers these qualifications, these individuals are living a life that is generally found to be blameless. There is only one individual who was sinless, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the present day, in the present time of this consideration, this individual is not one who can be found with certain blame or faults. Not that they are sinless, but rather that they have a self-control. They're marked by respectfulness in manner. If we were to have as a qualification sinless men as elders and deacons, there would be none. So don't let the word blameless think that this person could never actually have to be told that there's sin in their life, but rather a general pattern. And we need to consider that these are present tense patterns. This isn't the history of their entire life. And that's important because there was a moment when they were not in Christ and they stood condemned. They stood under the wrath of God. There may be another moment in their life as a new believer or as a seasoned believer where they go through periods of sin. But there is a present tense reality to these qualifications such that as the church is asked to consider these individuals, they're able to see a recent and steady trend in these qualifications. And this is important. Respectful in manner and self-controlled in conduct. But there's a third area that we could 
say that deacons are required to have and to be, and that is faithful in doctrine. Faithful in doctrine. Look at verse 9. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Now, of course, we could broaden this out to the totality of the Scriptures, but in its immediate use, this is primarily a reference to the gospel, the saving work of Jesus Christ, having obedience to the faith. Matthew Poole, the Puritan of the 1600s, writing on this passage, says this, quote, "...not ignorant or inconstant persons, but such as were acquainted with the mysteries of the gospel." And believed them and held to them and men of a holy life. Now you see, your holiness is not the gospel, is it? Why would Matthew Poole, the Puritan, say, and men of a holy life, when speaking of the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience? Because if a man believes the gospel... If a man has been changed by the gospel, then there is a desire after and a growth in holiness in their life. But make no mistake, friend, you seeking to live a holy life is not what saves you. It is not the good news. There will not be a day at all in glory where heaven will say, the good news is you lived a good life and that's why you're here. Rather, the only cry of glory in heaven will be the praise of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. This is the gospel. This is what these men must hold to, this mystery of the faith. Elsewhere, Paul uses that word mystery as he's talking about the unfolding plan of salvation. These deacons are known as people who are faithful to the gospel and the doctrines that surround it. These men, notice, do not need to be qualified to teach as elders, but they do need to be men who will not be led astray by false doctrine, by God's grace. They need to understand the gospel. Thus, they need to be individuals who the church is able to say, these men don't seem to be denying the truth of the gospel, and the related teachings of Christ's word. So what have we seen so far? A present tense pattern of respectful in manner, self-control in conduct, and faithful in doctrine. Now as an aside, if you remember this morning, there were several of those first deacons who actually were teachers and evangelists. And for that word evangelist, I would refer to you the sermon from a few weeks ago of Ephesians chapter 4, the particular office of an evangelist, which has now ceased. So it is not to say that certain deacons won't be teaching or won't be men who the church recognize as gifted brothers or teachers, but rather it is to say that unlike elders, the expectation is not that they have to be qualified to teach, and yet they hold to the mystery of the faith. But as Paul continues, notice what he says in verse 10. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. We spoke of this this morning. Remember, the apostles went to the church and asked the church to be involved in the selection of deacons. 
they gave the qualifications a person of good reputation, full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. We're, we're given further description of that here, aren't we, in 1 Timothy 3. And again, it is not as though the church should exist with people walking around day by day, constantly observing the fruit or the lack thereof in their brothers and sisters. But it is to say the expectation is that the entire church will have the opportunity to see the fruit in the life of a person who is put forward by Christ church as a deacon. The congregation has had a chance to observe their life. Thus, it would be highly irregular. Not that it would never happen, because there are church plants, there are new churches, church, churches that grow very quickly, but it would generally be irregular for an individual to be put forward for nomination of deacon a person that the church hasn't had a chance to see, their life, their service? Are they faithful to the gospel? Do they live a life of self-control? What is their mouth like? Are they given to much wine? In other words, these men are to be believers who are mature in the faith with a knowledge that affects the way they live the Christian life. And this, we could say, connects us to Acts chapter 6's word this morning, wisdom. My family and I were having a discussion over the lunch table today, and the question of wisdom came up. What is wisdom? Wisdom is not simply knowing a lot of facts. That may be knowledge. But wisdom is when we put knowledge into practical practice. It changes the way we approach situations. What is Known may be involved in what is wise, but what is wise is when knowledge begins to affect how we approach situations. So these men are to be tested among the body. But notice, Paul continues in verse 12, let deacons be the husbands of one wife ruling their children and their own houses well. Now, some of you are going to immediately say, ah, but there's verse 11. Yes, yes, I know, we're going to get there. But notice a fifth area related to the deacons. That is that they are dutiful at home. They are dutiful at home. Verse 12 speaks to the issues of house and home, namely marriage and children. So let's talk about each of those. The text says, let deacons be the husbands of one wife. You may have a translation which renders it almost like a one-woman man. This is a present tense reality that is being spoken of here. Now, we have an interpretive challenge, don't we? There are some things that I think we need to rule out, but we need to mention them first. Is this saying that in order to be a deacon, a person has to be married? If you take this hyper-literally, then yes. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife. Therefore, single men and widowered men are out. But that can't be the case. Paul, the same writer in 1 Corinthians 7, essentially argues that there is a goodness in singleness, namely in the service of Christ. 
Does this mean then that if a deacon is married and his wife dies, that he should give up the office because he's no longer the husband of one wife? Well, of course not. So this is not a requirement that a man be married in order to be a deacon. It's also not a prohibition of someone who has lost his wife to death from serving. Let the, husbands, let the deacons be husbands of one wife. A, a man may be married and his wife die and then he marries again, as 1 Corinthians 7 says, in the Lord. He now has been married twice in his life. Does this prohibit him from serving as a deacon? Well, certainly not. Certainly not. But of course, the bigger question comes then, well, I'm with you, preacher. Of course, it's not limited to single men. For all we know, Paul was single. Of course, a deacon whose wife passes away and he marries another in the Lord would not be prohibited from being a deacon. But what about a man who's been divorced and remarried? Well, of course, this then takes us to the entirety of the question of divorce, doesn't it? Jesus, of course, in teaching on marriage and divorce, with a high view of marriage, and Paul, alongside Christ Jesus, does give certain permissions, if you will, for a person to pursue divorce. We don't have time to mine all of these texts, but those texts would be texts that help us to understand that if an individual is the victim of adultery, the victim of sexual immorality, or has been abandoned by his or her spouse, that they are permitted to divorce, would then there not be the opportunity to remarry? Would then there not also be the case where in certain cases, if a person has handled that divorce well in a biblical way, that they not be prohibited from serving in the office of a deacon? I want you to understand that the current way that our elders look at this passage would be the way that I've laid it out. That Of course, this is not saying deacons have to be married. It's simply saying if a man is married, he must be faithful. He must be a man of one woman. That men who have lost their spouse to death and who are remarried are certainly not prohibited. And if a man has been divorced and remarried, and in his case, the divorce was a biblical one, that this would not rule out his service. And I want to press you one step further. Beyond full discussion for tonight, but there may indeed even be cases where, because of the present tense reality of this text, a man may have been divorced at a previous time in his life and borne some fault in that divorce. And there may be cases even in this situation where deep repentance has occurred and a lifestyle of purity and one-womanness exists in his journey, where there may be the need for a church to consider such a man. I'm not making that declaration. But I think what we have to do is we have to see the thrust of what Paul is after. The thrust is these men honor marriage. 
these men honor marriage? Are they pure in marriage or are they pure in singleness? Is that an ongoing reality that has been the case for a long period of time? Does the entire church have the opportunity to say that man understands the seventh commandment and he is faithful to his wife and to the wives and marriages of others? He works for their good. So this individual is dutiful at home, but also, notice what the text says, ruling their children and their own houses well. This is important. We spoke of this this morning. A man is going to have to make very wise decisions in his care for the body of practical needs. It should not surprise us then that he is a man who can demonstrate that he can rule his household well, whether his household is himself or his wife and children and perhaps even grandchildren and others living in his house. So a couple of practical questions. Does the man currently have control of his children? Does the man have an organized life as it relates to the household? Do they make decisions, he and his wife, that demonstrate that the household is generally running well? Again, this is not sinlessness, but this is a pattern of life. Is this a man who is settled? Is he dependable? There may be men who are great servants, but who are not able to dedicate the time necessary for the office, or men who are not able to dedicate sustained and repeated and organized time to the needs of the body. Does this man demonstrate by how he leads his household that he is able to keep his commitments? Is this a man that everyone in the church has a hard time discerning whether the household is actually running well? Now again, brothers and sisters, the last thing that I want to encourage you to do today is to start looking around the church and judging everyone's households. There are going to be socks and shirts on the floor of all of our houses. Sometimes the kitchen counters will be clean and sometimes they will not. Sometimes the children will be under control and sometimes they will not be. But is there an attempt, is there a pattern of organization within their lives such that you could say those children understand that he is their father and that he is speaking to them and there is a regular design in the house where it is clear this man is not neglecting his duty to his family. And this may mean that certain men have to say, for this season, I need to focus on this household because it's taking extra work. And thus, I need not be a servant of tables in this season. Dutiful at home as it relates to marriage and if children exist in the household, children as well. Lastly, before we look at the next few verses, this will become important, this phrase, ruling their own houses well. We often associate that with children. Ruling your house means you got your kids under control. That's part of it. But does this person have a pattern? It seems to make wise decisions with their resources, however sparse or Great they may be. Does this person have the, the kind of disposition that people know? He, he's making wise decisions. 
You see, ruling children and ruling houses well are both a part of this discussion. Well, these five things are things that we see, but there is one other thing before we address verse 11, and that's verse 13. There we see that these men will ultimately be honored in service. Honored in service. Look at verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons. Now, that's the qualification to this statement. Not all deacons will serve well, but for those who have served well as deacons, obtained for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Look at that phrase, good standing. The Greek word underlying that phrase there in the English has in view a step. Like think a staircase, boys and girls, steps. You're climbing steps. It's almost as if the text is saying those deacons that serve well will have a a good standing within the body. It will be as though people can say, this person is, is, is taking steps, not above us. He is better than us. But that there is a movement forward in the call of the gospel in his life. He's taking steps up the staircase. This is rendered then as good standing. He will be honored if he serves well. The the body will recognize the honor of his life by the glory of Christ. So a question for us is always, do we honor our deacons? Do we honor our deacons? Words of encouragement, of course, are important. But as we have deacons now and more deacons in the future by God's grace, we ought to be regularly asking ourselves, hey, do we pray for these deacons? If the deacon is undertaking a task because that is a task that is important to serving the body, do I come alongside and honor the deacon in that task? You know, we have a lot of tasks around here that deacons do that nobody knows about. And sometimes those tasks may not be our preference or preferences. Sometimes deacons have to make wise decisions about how to use the resources of the church. And one of the ways that we can honor the deacons is to say, wait a minute, if this brother is spending all of this time trying to move in this direction and do these things for the good of the body, I don't want to be living in this body in such a way to tear down what he's doing. And that may be as simple as how the church is cleaned. How we care for the resources of the body. How we uh, dispense resources to our widows. How we care in mercy. But notice the text says, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Their service matches their confession in Christ, and thus they are able to speak boldly of the faith without pangs of conscience distracting them. They believe in Christ, and they're serving well in this office, and thus their service in this office is adorning the profession of faith that they have in Christ so that they can actually speak boldly about the work of Christ. Perhaps in evangelism, Perhaps in their care in making mercy-related kinds of aid in the body. So they are honored in service. Those that served well will obtain a good standing and have the benefit of great boldness in the faith. Now notice the text says, faith which is in Christ Jesus. Notice that 
phrase very carefully. Firstly, notice that faith is in Christ Jesus. Our faith is in Christ Jesus. We trust him as a person, and he is the centerpiece of our faith. Not our works, not our religious devotion, but our faith which is in or centered around Christ Jesus. A simple question again this evening is, is your faith in Christ? Do you have beliefs about Christ? So does Satan. So do the demons. So do liberal religious scholars. They have beliefs about Christ. But do you have faith and trust in Christ? He is a real Lord who really died for real sinners, who says to real people in the world, come to me and I will receive you. So even this little nugget here in the qualification of deacons is so crucial for us. The boldness of the faith that these deacons have is a faith which is in Jesus. Are you resting on Christ? Teenagers, children, are you brought to church week in and week out? And you've sort of gotten in your mind that the goal of Christianity is to believe things about Jesus. Or have you actually come to the place in your life where you trust him to save you? So this faith is in Jesus, but secondly, it is a faith that is centered in Jesus. When we read the word, it's about Jesus. When we see the unfolding plan from Genesis to Revelation, it's about Jesus. When we worship Christ stands among us, leading us in the praise of the triune God. It's all about Christ. And these deacons who serve well not only have a good standing among us, but they have the benefit of boldness in the faith. And we see that, don't we? In Stephen, so bold that even when stones were coming his way, he didn't deny the faith. We see it in Philip who boldly declares to people from other parts of the world the name of Christ. These six things we see before us, but before we close, there is one verse. Quickly, look at verse 11. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Now here's our challenge. In the Greek language of the day, the word wife and the word woman was the same word. So every time in scripture that you see this word in Greek, you have to make a contextual decision. Is this wife or is this woman? In verse 11, the translation that we're using and other translations similar unto it will say, likewise, wives. But they'll add the word there, at least in the New King James Version, because of the way that it's rendered for us. It always tells you when they add a word so that the sentence is smooth. I actually like that, that there's a, a level of transparency there. Likewise, their wives. But the word there is not there in the Greek, so we have to make a decision. Is this wife or is this woman? And thus, once we have this decision to make, there are a couple of options. So let me present them to you without making an argument for any one of them this evening. 
This could be, as it seems to be on the surface in this English translation, the wives of male deacons. And it would make sense, wouldn't it? That as these men are often sent out, sometimes to minister to women, who were the first recipients of diaconal care, but widows, that their wives would be involved, and thus their wives need to also be reverent. They need to be women who are not going to go around talking about all the ministry needs that they've seen with their husband that day. You wouldn't believe what we did today. I can't believe her house looks like that. Not slanderers. Temperate. They're self-controlled faithful in all things. So it could be that these are wives of male deacons. It could be that these are women, female deaconesses. These are actually a a subset of qualifications added to the list for women who are serving as deacons. And a third option is an option that, that many have taken through the years, even in the early church. And Some of the reformers, like John Calvin, would argue that there are perhaps female deacon assistants. So women who will be helping the deacons. In any case, a decision has to be made. Now as I said this morning to you, we are seeking to increase how we use deacons and recognize them in this body in line with our shared confession of faith. Thus, even though we have had men and women recognized as deacons in the past, we will continue forward, the elders that is, with nominating men only, given that our intent is, for the first time, to publicly lay hands on our deacons, as we see in Acts 6. But let it be known that women will still be encouraged to serve in all of the ways that they have in the past perhaps even more. You will continue to see women noted as coordinators or point persons in various ways through the years. We'll simply seek from here forward to nominate and publicly set apart men to assist in one of the two offices of Christ's church here at Grace. But however you take this passage, the wives of male deacons, female deacons or deaconesses, or a particular class of women who are assistants to the deacons. In any case, notice the qualities that all women really should be pursuing. There's there's nothing extraordinary here, is there? As you consider this, sisters, you should pursue a life of reverence before the Lord. You should, as other texts tell us, not be slanderers or gossips. You should be temperate. You should be faithful. So, this is an important passage for us to consider. The elders are planning by God's grace in the coming weeks and months to bring some nominations for deacons to the body. What we should not do as a body is take this list of qualifications and walk around the church and inspect everyone's home and always be look well, that's not self-controlled. That's not him. But rather, we should consider this list as a Christ-ordained list for our body that when names come before this congregation now and even years down the road, we say to ourselves, it is important to Christ 
that elders and deacons serve in local churches. And that those deacons particularly be men of present qualification. And what are those qualifications? Well, the two texts that we've mined together today help us with this. By God's grace, may we as a church be served well for years to come by qualified deacons, table servants who are wise, who love the Lord, who are humble, who are self-controlled, who by his grace and his grace alone have been changed. And the entire body has the opportunity not to judge but to rejoice in how the Spirit is forging the fruits of the Spirit in his life. Let us pray to that end. Living God, we pray that your church would arise in evangelism, in worship and song, in care for one another, as well as in considering the importance of the offices of the church. Help us, O Lord, we pray. We pray that you would provide even more deacons for this body, that you would sustain the ones that we have. Help us, O Lord, to see the the fruit of deacons serving well within this body. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.